HR professionals, business owners, and operations at all levels are struggling to figure out what needs to change. Our system has been shocked, practices have been questioned, and conversations are finally happening. We all know there has been a huge shift in what people want. Inclusion and diversity are common phrases, but often misunderstood. Generations are coming together more than ever on what's important. Mental health has been brought to the forefront of everyone's mind. Let's humanize these conversations. Let's talk about what's important for employees to be successful in life and at their job, and how companies can create an environment to allow them to do both. Because successful people will make up a successful workforce. I'm Leanne Lovely. Let's get this conversation started. I have two great guests joining me today to um, have an awesome conversation. Um, so I'm so excited to be joined by Tamar Medford and Lane Kennedy. With over 37 years of continuous sobriety from booze, white powder, pills, and snicker bars, Lane Kennedy and Tamara Medford bring a wealth of experience and authenticity to their discussion on living in recovery. Lane and Tamar are on a mission to empower women, especially mothers, to break free from drinking and reliance on substances to have more fun in life. Fearless and unapologetic, they address addiction, bad habits, and changing the internal dialogue women have with themselves. Their focus is on helping women embrace an uncompromised and alcohol-free lifestyle, leaving behind codependency and negativity. Well, today is going to be a treat. I'm so excited. I have two amazing women joining me today, um, Lane and Tamar. Um, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Leanne. It's good to be with you. Yes, yeah. so good to be here. So why don't you both um, you know, start off by telling me, um, telling my audience a little bit about yourselves. Um, Lane, why don't you go first? Perfect. I like to go first. It's great. <laughs> Sometimes I defer to tomorrow, but I'll go first today. Thanks for having us on the show, Leanne. My name is Lane Kennedy. I live in long-term recovery. Uh, what that means is I don't drink or do drugs or eat Snickers bars. And I've done that for about 26 years now. So that kind of guides the direction of my life. I'm also a hypnotherapist and a DNA geek. I help people live in high performance state. Uh, that's really important for those people who are type A personality uh, who want to live a long life, they typically find themselves to me so I can help them or support them in finding uh, a better, more sustainable life so they can live into their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 100 like I am. Awesome. Tamar, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much for having us, Leanne. My name's Tamar Medford, and I also live in long-term recovery, except I still feel like a bit of a baby. I'm just about to celebrate 11 years, and I believe that I found my purpose as a result of finding recovery and getting sober. I'm a neurochange method practitioner, so I really help women, you know, kind of master their minds so they can let go of those limiting beliefs and create a life that they're fulfilled you know, a life that they never, ever want to go back to their old way of living. And I live in Canada. I'm the Canadian of our our hosts, our podcast. And uh, 
you know, I have a partner and three, I co-parent three girls and three fur babies. So I'm happy to be here. And three fur babies. Wow. I, I have one, my audience, I have one dog. He he just turned a, a year old and every day I have to stop myself from either kicking him out of the house or, or just beating him to death. Puppies are so hard. They They're are. Hard. I have a five-year-old and she's so much easier than right. <laughs> like, because I'll yell at him and he just wags his tail. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not. No, 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 no. You don't get it. I'm, I'm yelling at you. And he's just like, uh-huh. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, mom. He's a big, like, gigantic golden retriever. Mm-hmm. So, and, and he's stronger than me. And, mm. you know, he runs. Sorry, I, I digress. I just <laughs> I love, I love dogs. I love and all animals. I'm a lover mm-hmm. of people. He's maddening. Every I struggle. Every I I don't know. I, maybe I need to go into therapy or something for this. This <laughs> yeah. Since I got him, I've been going crazy. Okay, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> right. It's, everybody who knows me right now is uh, knows that I'm going through this this major issue with my my puppy. Except that he looks like a massive. You know, he's like a hundred pound, just dumb, cute, adorable thing that terrorizes me every day mm-hmm. okay <laughs> let's move on so um I I what you guys do is is amazing because um you know one it, it's not it's not an easy thing to one to live in recovery and then to go out and and talk about it and that is what right now the world needs we need warriors we need um people having these conversations to make it less, you know, of a stigma, right? Correct. Because, you know, for so long, there's so many things out there that people are like, oh, don't talk about that in public. Don't, and I still don't talk about religion, you know, politics and everything else. But this is a conversation that we all need to start having and just you know, really humanize and make it more okay to be able to talk with people about it because if we did more people would ask for help they wouldn't hide it for as long as people hide it they would know where to go right Mm -hmm. so why don't you tell me a little bit about your journey to and again whatever how much ever you want to share but your journey to finding your voices and do you know to become who you are today and, and, and what you're doing. Tamar, why don't you start that off? Because it's been so long for me, you're closer to it. <laughs> okay. No problem. Um, and you're well, more corporate, right? You come from the corporate world. Right? I do. I do. I, and I was very functioning towards the end. I mean, I, you know, started like a lot of people do drinking at the age of 14 and I just felt like I never belonged and, you know, alcohol turned my life from, you know, black and white to color. That's the only way I can describe it. And I wanted more. And unfortunately, you know, in my 20s, I hit some very dark times. I think that was kind of where it was never enough. But then I thought, hey, you know what? I got to do what society tells me to do. I need to go to school. I need to get a good job. I need to get married, buy the car, buy the home. And so that's exactly what I did. And, you know, I had a a very good job. And I worked in corporate for about uh, 28 years. And, of course, they knew 
that I, you know, was an alcoholic. It was no secret. But I think because I could come to work every day, I might have smelt like a brewery, but because I could show up, it was, you know, the people that I worked for were under this, like, as long as you show up and you do the work well, it's okay. You know, you'll, you'll be accepted here. And of course, there's such a culture of drinking in sales. Um, I think, you know, that it's still like that, but I remember, you know, it was just the norm to go out with your customers and get drunk and, you know, do it again the next day, go to trade shows. And towards the end, um, although everybody knew that I had a problem, because of course, at the company functions, I just let loose and I never remembered the end of them. And it always became a big joke. But I'm very fortunate. I had a few people who were really my friends in in my place of business and said, you know, you might have a problem. And of course, I didn't listen for a long time until I actually hit that spiritual bottom. And, you know, I was financially bankrupt, unhappily married, you know, all the things never gave me any sort of satisfaction or fulfillment in life. And I actually hired a personal trainer in the beginning and thought, well, if I lose 75 pounds, and I change the way I look on the outside, people will love me more. I'm going to be so happy, but it didn't fix the pain I felt on the inside. And that was, I didn't like what I was doing. I wasn't happy in my marriage, my relationship. And so I actually became like went on this six month journey of, I went full on to the addiction of, of fitness and I had chicken, broccoli, and rice every single day. I would go to the gym seven days a week because I thought that's what would make me happy. And the cool part and how I ended up becoming sober is the woman I hired as a personal trainer was actually part of a 12-step recovery program. And partway through, as you know, I would report how much I had had to eat all week. And including that was nine, nine drinks. I'd have nine beers on the weekend. And I was so proud. Like that was my happy, you know, look at me um, moment. And she had suggested, you know, I think you might have a problem and this is what I do. And so I'm very fortunate that the business I worked for was very accepting, like they knew and they were very supportive of it. Um, they would try and plan other kind of events that didn't involve alcohol. But of course, there was still that I just I was very lucky that I came from that corporate world that was okay with me being sober and supported that aspect of my life. And you know, becoming sober has changed everything. I found my purpose. I do what I love today. I was able to actually leave corporate, but I still talk to a lot of people and a lot of women who work in HR on how they can start to support people who are sober or want to give up alcohol. And something that you said in there, I, I mean, and that's an amazing story because 11 years ago, it wasn't widely accepted. And Knowing somebody, you know, businesses quite often just kind of, they didn't talk about it. If they knew it, it was a hush-hush, um, you know, and if they found out about it, it was more like, okay, don't don't let anybody know that we know because mm. we don't want it to be, you know, known that we were allowing this. So it's it's amazing that you were in a situation where your employer, you know, helped you through that, kept you and allowed you to continue to, you know, grow and, and, and find other ways to, you know, other events, because you're right. I'm, I'm through and through sales and um, it's events, evening events. They're at bars. They're at the first thing that everybody does is go and run and get their drink before they start networking. 
mm-hmm. you know, and um, yeah, it's just, but something else that you said, um, switching addictions. You know, I have an addictive personality. I, I, I always have. No, I'm, you know, I'm not an alcoholic, but I, um, I'll go from one thing to the next. I remember I bought um, loose leaf tea. <laughs> I became severely addicted to like loose leaf tea. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I got it. And then I would spend like hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And then everybody's like, what are you, I mean, what, are you going to drink all this? Well, no, I'm not going to drink it all. It just, it became an obsession. And then it was fine wines for me. Like, oh, I'm going to go and buy all these fine, you're going to drink all this? Well, no, now I've got like 8 billion bottles of wine. They're going to sit there and it's going to take me <laughs> 10 years to drink because right now my addiction is, you know, my most recent one is I love making resin art. Okay. So these aren't necessarily unhealthy, but I have an addictive well, I mean, I suppose, you know, collecting hundreds of bottles of wine is probably not the most healthy. Anyways. <gasps> so there, but it's, it's completely true. People who have those addictive personalities and unfortunately, if it is drugs and alcohol and those, it is very easy to, you know, fall down that. And there's a lot of professionals who have it. And as soon as you give up that one addiction, it's so common that you watch that person slide into some other addiction working out seven days a week I mean and 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 you can you can watch people like all of a sudden you'll say to somebody what wow you've lost 60 pounds what are you doing oh I'm just working out and come to find out when you hear their full story you're like oh I never knew you were an alcoholic or I never knew you were struggling with this and then, and then you hear their full story and you're like, oh, why didn't you tell, you know, why didn't you ask for help or, right? I mean, yeah. and, and both of you are, are laughing at my, you know, <laughs> rambling on. Anyway. Well, there's a couple of things here, Leon. Now I know why we're friends. Absolutely. <laughs> I have a huge tea uh, collection and my husband's always like, what are you doing? Like, what's the purpose of this? I'm like, I don't know. I just have to have more tea. <laughs> just- uh, I, so yeah, I have a teapot yeah. collection. I have you yeah. know all of the different sifters. So, I know yeah. it's so important. Uh, and from the work that I do, you know, I would say you know your DRDs, which are genes uh, that I look at when somebody comes to me and work with me about their behavior. And I would say you're all lit up. That's what I would say, <laughs> just like I am. Um, people who have addiction or have um, these snips is what we're, we call them in my work. Uh, they just need more support. So we don't uh, buy, you know, 10 pounds of loose leaf tea <laughs> or drink, you know, three bottles of wine every night. You know, it's here in America. I can't speak for Canada tomorrow, but here in America, we have, you know, about 14 million, over 14 million people who are suffering from alcoholism in the workplace in the workplace. That's a lot of people in the workplace. That's like one in 12, one in 13 people who are actively in their addiction. And 25% of them drink like on the job during work hours. Uh, and I was one of those people. Mm-hmm. I, you know, come from the entertainment and the fashion industry. Uh, I was at parties. Um, I was working with designers 
uh, one of my designers says, you smell, you have to go home. Cause I was literally reeking of vodka. And you know, when you're kind of stuck in your alcoholic behavior, you don't, you don't know. Like, I didn't know I had showered that day. I had done my hair that day. I had my heels on. I was looking good. I thought, but this designer said, no, you have to go home and like sleep it off. And I think that's something that a lot of people will ignore today is they'll just, oh, it's fine. You know, like whatever. And I'm really grateful because that designer gave me a moment for me to reflect on my life. Like, how dare you? Like that was the beginning of like questioning my drinking. Like I have a drinking problem. She just told me that I smell. How's that possible? Um, and so I drank and I used, and I love drinking vodka. I love red wine. But after that moment, you know, after that designer said that I really kind of had to slow down and reevaluate, I became a, what we call a periodic drinker where I would drink for a couple months and then stop. Maybe I would drink for a couple of weeks and then stop. Uh, and then it just, it just wasn't fun anymore. It just literally was not fun anymore, you know? Uh, so I'm grateful that I, by accident, stopped drinking. Like it wasn't my plan to stop. Like that just, it just happened, I say. And I jumped into recovery and my life got exponentially better. Like I had a great career coming into it. But as soon as I found recovery, my career exploded. My life exploded. Uh, it was 10x. All the things that I didn't even know that I wanted, I started, you know, accumulating. And one of the the big things around, you know, addiction or alcoholism is is the stigma, right? That we don't talk about it. That we don't, it, it's like, no, that's, you're not going to bring that up into the light. And I, I just want people to hear that, you know, there's the American Disability Act that says you can talk about it. You can say, you know what? I need help. Mm-hmm. You can raise your hand and say, I need help. And then, the, then you don't get fired, right? <laughs> like I didn't get fired because I actually went back to that designer and said, I think I have a problem. And they were like, oh, okay, great. So a lot of people don't even know that, that they, you know, they, they think that they have to keep it quiet. So I don't know. Recovery is a great tool. It's, it's, it lets us live our best lives. Like, don't we want to live that? Right. And, and in recent years, I believe now they have, they, they've actually made alcoholism, drug addiction, all of those specific wording has now become protected classes, just like mental health, just like, so if you go to your employer and say, I have you know, an addiction or I have a, they, they can't, they can't fire you for that because it is now just like, you know, if I were to go to my employer and say, I have bipolar disorder, they can't say, okay, well, we're going to fire you because of that. Of course I'm self-employed. So, you know, that'd be myself firing me. Maybe I should fire myself. I don't know. Oh my gosh. No. So, you know, and that's and that's the whole point is that if you hide it and you get mm-hmm. fired for your behavior and the you know and then you go back and say well no employer you can't fire me because I'm I'm an alcoholic it's too late at that point yeah exactly it, it's too late if you go to your employer and say 
I need to go into a recovery program Mm -hmm. because I have a problem. That employer is now able to assist and help by offering you the time that you need and your your job is is then secure so that you can go and take the time that you need to get the help that you need and know that you have a position to come back to and i don't know that people understand that and and i'm not you know and again i'm sure that there's employers out there going oh man don't don't tell the masses <laughs> but th- this is this is a real thing people stay quiet until it's too late because well, people I die. What? People die. Yes. Is what happens. People die. I mean, alcoholism is uh, a deadly disease, addiction, substance use disorder. It's killer. And people die in their home alone because they're too afraid to say, you know what? I have a problem. Yep. And they're too afraid of the stigma or the feedback or somebody getting in trouble at work. And I think the pandemic, I mean, thank God. In a lot of ways, I'm like, thank God for the pandemic. Because recovery came screaming out of the closet. You know, it's like, we have to recover together. We have to talk about this. You know, mental health, we have to be talking about it. Absolutely. And that's, you know, I went through the, I went through a recovery program. Mm -hmm. Um, Lane, I think you and I talked about this. And and again, Mm -hmm. it's been a long time since we last spoke, but I went through, I went through the 12 step program. Um, And this was very early in, you know, I was in my early twenties. Um, but I had not yet properly been diagnosed with mm-hmm. bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And so after I went through, you know, the recovery and my, and my doctor told me, I will not treat you if you continue to abuse alcohol and drugs and continue to do what you're doing. And I'm like, Oh yeah, but you know, when I'm not doing it, I can't stay in my own head. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, I get that. But in order to get you to a point of, of health, healthy living, you have to stop. So I went into recovery. I went into the program. Now I'm, now I'm sober. I'm on, you know, fast forward. I'm on the proper medications yeah. and I'm, I'm high functioning. And I said to my doctor, I don't believe I'm an alcoholic. And he goes, well, we don't know. Do you want to risk it? I don't know if I do. So I didn't drink for a very long time. And then one day I had a glass of wine and I'm like, eh, okay. Okay. And now I'm a social drinker, but I'm also not, you know, I, I don't, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't, I don't have that drive or that, but I'm a rarity for most people. Once they cross that threshold, they they don't go back. For me, it was an underlying issue of mental health, and I needed to. I, I you know again, I still I still have an addictive personality, but I never I, I the the reason that I had my alcohol and drug addiction was because of that underlying mental health issue, and my brain was just not functioning properly. For most well, people, I'll- they'll never once they've crossed that threshold. It's just better to walk away from it. Well, alcoholism is a mental, right? It's a, it's a mental disorder. It is. And a lot of people don't want to look at it that way. They don't want to think, oh my God, I have a mental disorder. No, 
<laughs> no, one more disorder, but really like alcoholism stems from like depression, anxiety, right? They're, they're all kind of the same, you know, drinking is the medicine for the disorder that we suffer from end of sentence period. We suffer from a mental illness and for Tamar and I, we use alcohol. We don't take a substance. We don't take a pill, right? So we suffer from this. Again, I look at the genes so I can look at them and say, okay, the OPR is off, the DRD is off, the AP one's off. So those genes, that body needs to get fed somehow. They need to get that information. So not everybody will, you know, pick up a glass of wine. Like, like you, you're picking up the tea, right? Like it's going to find a way to soothe it, so to speak. But some people will find recovery and then they won't have to go around in that, that constant loop. It gets rid. This is such a big conversation here, Leanne. (laughs) So, so I, and I find that, see, now you're educating me on something Mm. and I find that I, I, very interesting. And this is why, you know, I love talking to people like you because so there are DNA indicators yes. that say that can, you can actually read that say that this person is, is more apt to become an alcoholic or is an alcoholic. I would say more inclined if the environment, you have to think about like your environment, it really, it, it, <laughs> It shapes who you are, your environment. Just think about that for a minute. Your environment, you could have the perfect life, but say you have a neighbor that's constantly pounding on the door next to you. That is going to drive you crazy, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so that environment, your environment is going to start uh, feeding into like you're, you're going to go crazy and then you'll want to do something. That's the environment. The environment shapes you. Well, I get the so, baby. Say again. <laughs> I said, I get the BB gun. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. You get the BB gun. Yes. Right. Which, so I'm not going to say, oh, I'm going to look at your genes and I'm going to say, I'm going to call you an alcoholic. No. What I see are, you know, your genes or your DNA, uh, they could go sideways. They could be little rebel rousers in there. One gene is not going to be the answer, right? No, it's the whole, your whole environment, your whole body. There's so many contributing factors. Right that lead up to somebody becoming an alcoholism. Almost like an autoimmune disease, which is in you, but it's an autoimmune disease is triggered by a series of, you know, events, stress. It can, you know, I could, I could have the, all the indicators for an autoimmune disease, but it, and here's why I bring that up. I have identical mirror image twin brothers. Mm. One of those twins has, both of them have the indicators for an autoimmune disease. Only one has triggered it. Yep. And that would be in their genes. Correct. So I'd be able to look at that and be like, oh, here, here's both of these sets of genes. This one has this, and there's this one little snip that's different and that's been triggered. Interesting. Yeah. That's uh, that I see. And I find that completely and totally fascinating because, you know, and especially in twins, again, mirror Mm -hmm. image, identical twin brothers, Mm -hmm. which means that they're a hundred percent there is no differentiator between those two. They were created by the same egg, the same sperm, you know, I mean, they, they, when I was a little girl, they're three years older than me. I used to mix them up because they are so identical. 
<laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> right. Right. So, but one has, you know, triggered it. The other one has yep. not. Yep. So, That's exactly right. And that comes down to, you know, stress. And one has more gray hair than the other one at the, why is that? Well, because life happens. And when life happens, it changes the way that our body reacts. And so one may have more stress than the other one. Therefore, he's going gray faster. He's also got two kids, you know, that are, you know. So, hey, if there's ever a study that wants to be, you know, done on why we, our bodies change in a certain way or at a different rate, produce some mirror image twi- or produce identical twins and see how they grow up because. Yeah. That's, I I find that completely fascinating. Okay. So obviously, um, and this is another great case study because, you know, employees now coming forward and talking about this kind of stuff, um, it's, we're, we're, we're literally in, and I suppose every generation, every generation has said we're in a pivotal moment of, of changing the landscape of the way that we look at humans and trying to really push, you know, that we're humanizing humans and we're not putting them all into this bucket of, OK, you know, you this is the way that you're supposed to act at this given time. We're, we're now looking at individuals in the workplace and we're trying we're we're trying to make that shift. Right. Um, how do you think that this is really going to impact our workforce going forward? I mean, as far as helping them versus penalizing them, do you, do you think it's going to make a, a huge change? Tomorrow I see you coming off of mute. So why don't you go first? Um, absolutely. I mean, you know, part of the reason I never wanted to talk about it is because of the stigma. You know, because I had always heard that you have to have had a traumatic childhood to become an alcoholic or an addict. Now it runs in my family, right? But again, my family suffers from depression, anxiety. You know, my dad is very open about it with me now. And I think in the workplace, if we can, you know, create an environment where people can actually say how they feel and we have leaders in business that understand and are emotionally intelligent themselves, then that will create or foster that openness, that vulnerability. And I think, you know, a lot of people that I talk to that don't understand it, they don't maybe know anybody directly that's been affected by addiction, which is very rare because at some events when they ask people, you know, who here has been touched by addiction, a lot of people put up their hands. But you know, I still have people once in a while that I meet that haven't really experienced anybody that they really love that has gone through this, having that compassion and that empathy, because, you know, I mean, I've had people say, you know, why, why, why do you drink so much? Why can't you stop? Why can't you just have one glass of wine? And it's hard to explain because they don't like my partner has maybe one alcoholic drink a, a month and it still baffles me. Right. But, you know, I think if they can change the culture in the workplace to having events that don't always have to involve alcohol and understanding it more, I think that's, you know, in if you don't know anybody that's had it, right? You're I know lots of people who look at people who are homeless and say, Oh, that bum. 
And like, we're trying to teach our kids that when you look at someone, there's a story behind that person, right? You can't just judge right away. You have to have empathy and maybe there's something else at play here. So I think really educating people as well in the workforce of what it's like, you know, because I'm sure that somebody who is judgmental about it right now and believes that stigma, if their their husband, their wife, their kids, they developed addiction or they became an addict or an alcoholic, I'm sure their perception would change because now it's affecting them directly. And I think we, we only take the time to understand when we're in that, that, you know, Oh no, now it's affecting me directly, but we have to be proactive. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the number of people, um, and, and I've argued this with, you know, other, and other podcasts, you know, we talk about mental, it being a mental health, you know, thing, being a mental health um, issue. Um, you know, we talk about neurodiversity. So everything's falling into now, you know, under the, the, are you neurodiverse? Are you know, there's all of these different things now that are following, falling under that category. And I think statistically that, you know, the amount of people that they say who are now considered to be neurodiverse was like, it was a, a really low number. And I truly believe that that number of people who fall, would fall in the bucket of being neurodiverse should is like probably like 70% of the population. And the only reason that the studies are so off, because I think it was like 30% or something. The only reason that that number is off is because most of Americans do not disclose in any way. Because if you truly think about it, and, and I have these conversations all the time, and I'm because I'm so open about the fact that I have bipolar disorder. I had an uncle who died of alcoholism. I have, you know, alcoholism throughout my entire, you know, family. I, I know I have a, a dear friend of mine whose, you know, partner is an alcoholic. I, I also live in Milwaukee, like the capital drinking state of the world, <laughs> where we have fests that are all about beer it's so it's where I grew up you know there's the joke that if you know if you have if you went to college you probably have an OWI it's not really a joke it's it's sad that you know we I grew up in a in a place where it's just it was so normal that the adults around you were drinking a beer and by the time you were 12 you probably had the taste of you know alcohol by that time um, I had a point anyways, neurodiverse it it's if everybody disclosed it that number would be like we would be the majority. It's just people don't out of fear out of I think there's a lack of awareness of what what neurodivergent means. I mean, I have a 13 year old who is neurodivergent. I had no idea what that meant, right? Until I went through this process of learning and understanding what is happening to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would have never gone through that if I was not, you know, having carrying a kid or wasn't curious. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people and resources, I have the resources to go down that path and to discover what was happening, right? People are kind of like in their own little box, in their own little worlds, uh, you know, we're becoming the loneliest nation in the world right now. And I'm t- 
tomorrow again, I'm speaking about the U S <laughs> um, and it's, it's a sad, we're, in, we're kind of in a sad state right now, you know? And so people who are suffering from neurodivergence or who see the world a little bit differently, you know, it's a time for us to come together and build, start building community, start building connection with others. And that's one of the greatest gifts of recovery is that we have recovery communities. You know, there's Buddhist recovery, there's, um, yoga recovery, there's 12 step recovery. There's all types of different recovery where we can go find support and be in community and not isolation because neurodivergence, right. Is it's a little tiny box, whether you're suffering from autism. I had a client, uh, last year, you know, we, through working together, we figured out that she has, she's autistic. And she was like, oh my God, this is so, I, I'm so relieved, right? And then she was able to get into her a community and she's just grown as a human being. I mean, it's incredible what's happened. So it's, it's like say, saying, you know, questioning, like what's going on with me? Like, I'm a little bit different. I see the world a little bit differently. And then talking, opening up and talking to others about that. So you can start to find your people, so to speak. You know, that is like where we need to start healing, not only in the workplace, but in our own neighborhoods, right? Our own schools, our own, our own cities, we have to start connecting. The the problem one is that it's, you're, you're right. We don't openly talk about it enough, mm -hmm. but, and again, this is a U.S. thing. Sorry. But the medical, <laughs> the medical institutes have made it so difficult mm, yeah, yeah. to get the help that you need. Yeah. I mean, I, I call and I make an appointment and I'm like, you know, I'm having a really bad headache and it's been consistent and consistent. And the doctor literally walks in and goes, okay, so you're having headaches. <laughs> okay. Um, well here, I can probably give you a prescription for blah, 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 blah. Anything else? And I'm like, no, 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 wait a second. I want to know why. I don't want to put a Band-Aid on it and take a medication for it. I want the why so that we can. They don't, they don't know. They don't know. They, right. We're not treating. We're not treating the problem. We're treating the symptoms. And that has become like that is a problem when we just mm -hmm. constantly throw medication or throw a, you know, well, if you do this or do that. That falls on our medical institute, who yeah. basically is overbooking because the more patients they see, the more they get paid, which means that doctors are not spending time with their patients at all. Right. Not to mention right. insurance companies are driving who you're allowed to see. So I've had to switch doctors like five times. So they don't know me. They don't know my medical history. And regardless of whether or not they help me, I have to pay them. So I don't get to say, um, yeah, this was a really shitty oil change. I'm not paying you. Well, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I, I had to get a new psychiatrist because I'm on meds for my bipolar. I didn't like him. So I said, and again, nothing against him. He was a re really brilliant person, just didn't jive with my personality. I I, I called and I said, you know, I'm not going to make another appointment. I would like to request a different doctor. They got all upset. Well, what do you mean? No, you need to get his permission to get a different doctor. I said, why would I need his permission 
to request a different doctor. What is wrong with our, I mean, come on, why, why? I'm like, why, why? And then, then they explained to me, well, we don't want somebody, you know, seeking out medicine or doctor jumping. I'm like, okay, I get that. But the answer is simple. I don't like him. Well, we still have to get his permission. So then they had to go back to him and say, well, she doesn't really like you. Yeah, the system is broken. The system is broken. It's really broken here in the States. Canada, not as broken. <laughs> it is It is still broken, but not quite as as badly. Yes, I will yeah. second that. Yeah, I think but it's I think- being an advocate, right? We we all have to advocate for ourselves, and if we're not doing that, then we're we're part of the problem. So, again, I just go back to we have to stand up, we have to connect with others, we have to start telling the truth, even if we're super afraid of it. Like, I have to tell the truth today, otherwise, I am doomed to a, a life of isolation. Forget it. Forget it. Yeah. And I feel that there needs to be more resources for people. I mean, here, um, it, there's such a, a long, like it, it's such a long wait list to get in to go see a doctor for, you know, an MRI or something like that. Or an example is one of the girls needs a new psychologist. Well, on a wait list, it's been eight months. And so they're not getting the help or support that they need. And there's so many people out there and kids, especially, you know, so when it comes to addiction, like they're not getting the help they need. What do you think they're going to turn to? They're going to go to school. Their friend's going to give them, you know, some alcoholic beverage and they're going to say, oh, this makes me feel better. And there we go. And, you know, the science says if you start drinking before the age of 21, you know, one in four people will develop a substance abuse issue. If you hold off till after 21, it's one in 25. And so, you know, if you just look at that alone, the lack of resources for yeah. people out there right now, like we have to start being more proactive. I did not know that statistic. That's um, wow. Yeah. It's stunning, right? It's really, really stunning. That's why I, I think that's why tomorrow and I talk so much to moms and, you know, we laugh about our recovery, you know, laughing without liquor. It's, it's fun. It's upbeat. We're talking about real subject matter, but we talk about our kids. You know, I have a 13 year old and I don't, I had to talk to him about fentanyl. I had to talk to him about drugs. You know, this is the world that we live today, but because I'm in recovery, which is awesome, right? I have that capacity where Mm -hmm. when I was drinking and using, I just didn't have it. I just couldn't, I would have never been able to. So what about, and, and what about legalizing marijuana? Tamar, well, legalizing cocaine. Yeah. Canada here. Talk about broken right, system. Leanne, I know, right? I'm they, sorry. Canada they, is legalizing cocaine. They have decriminalized it. So of course, just like when marijuana was decriminalized up here before it actually became legal, there was these little shops that started popping up. And so I have heard that there's a couple shops now that they're actually selling cocaine. They're not supposed to be because you can't, you know, you can't, it's when you get arrested with a small amount, it's not as big of a deal, but it's insane. And 
the whole marrow yeah there there's an author called judy uh judy grizel and she wrote a Mm. book the experience in neuroscience of addiction and she actually i had interviewed her for my summit and she talks about marijuana being the most addictive drug because it's the only drug that lights up every part of your brain and you know, we have two 18 year old twins, one of them who they're both neurodivergent, but one who's cognitively at a 10, 12 year old level, she has her friends telling her, no, just smoke this joint. Like marijuana is not harmful for you. In fact, hemp is healthy. Well, maybe the hemp part is, but the, you know, the THC part is not. And it's no wonder why everything just seems better when you smoke a joint. So I don't, I'm kind of, it's hard to talk to that because for me personally, as someone who is addicted to a lot, even chicken strips, Leanne, so don't feel bad about your tea. Last year was chicken strips for me. (laughs) You know, it's, it's hard to, you know, legalizing marijuana. I just, I feel like people need again to be educated more. Right. Mm -hmm. And for marijuana, there is a gene that if it's sideways, you know, you're going to be more addicted to it. Some people have that and and they can smoke it and they're like, I don't want it. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and, you know, the, the impact that that has to, to businesses, you know, I've seen obviously being on the HR side, being on the staffing side, how is that affecting companies. And, and what I have seen now is that they are no longer testing for marijuana, Mm. which means that it's more likely that somebody is going to come in intoxicated. hundred percent. Um, and you can't test to see if they are intoxicated at that moment or if they smoked it two days ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's another controversial, you know, thing that of course is, is, has been popping up. Despite mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the unknowns about what it could or could not do to one's body or to children's brains. Yeah. You know, we talk about the, the implication of a, a child smoking that before they're, uh, you know, certain age or um, drinking before a certain age. What are the implications of a child smoking something that could alter their brain chemistry before a certain age or just alter their brain chemistry for at any age? You know, it's, um, and again, the body, the body is a, this big chemistry, right? It's a factory, right? And we're putting things into it and we have this beautiful set of DNA that is going to work. And remember the environment and what we put in are going to be affecting all of that DNA all the time. So if you're a child and you're smoking, if you're an adult and you're smoking, right, you're affecting the chemistry of your body, which then affects your mood. It affects your sleep. It affects your weight. It affects your relationships, right? It, it affects everything. So, and I don't think it, this is where the education part comes in, right? We don't, we don't talk about our body and the chemistry and what we eat. We just say, eat a fruit, drink some milk, <laughs> eat a sandwich, Right. Nobody talks about our, you know, what, how the body operates. So I think we're doing a huge disservice for our children, you know, in school by not educating them properly about how the human body operates and what's needed for it to properly work. You know, all the mental illness that we have in the world right now, we don't, it's, it's, it's because we're not feeding the body properly. Mm -hmm. hundred percent. Absolutely. hundred percent. 
And I also, I've been one of those people who, you know, here's my little conspiracy theorist theory. So, (laughs) so since I've been young, um, I've been on one type of medication, you know, as a young, young child, they're like, oh, she suffers from depression. And they were feeding me antidepressants, which probably was swinging mm. into a manic episode. And yet, yeah, yeah, anyways, so I, I at one time read about our water filtration systems, the water that yeah, gets into our home, right? Yeah. Yep. So they regularly update those filtration systems to try to get rid of, you know, all of the stuff that goes into the the water and the ground or you know into the ground and blah 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 but here's here's something that they don't and can't possibly keep up on all of these new drugs that all of these pharmaceutical companies are constantly producing and making when Mm -hmm. somebody doesn't use all of those drugs and they decide oh here i'm going to flush them down the toilet which regularly happens even though the drug companies are like don't do that bring them back to us well it's irritating i'm just going to flush them down the toilet it still happens. We're still, yep. or they get somehow into a landfill and that's end yep. up, ends up back in our, okay. Yep. Now I'm drinking the water, which is yep. filled with yep. all of these antibiotics and all of these yep. other psychotropics and all of these other yep. drugs that is changing our brain chemistry. hundred percent. How is that not partially the cause of the rise in the amount of people who have mental health issues, who have all these other issues. The same thing with why is it seemed like everybody is taller than me. All of these kids are popping out that are way taller than me. I don't know. Is it because they're feeding these animals hormones? I don't know. That's my conspiracy theorist. Oh my God, Leanne. It's so great. So a lot of times I will, uh, when I'm working with a client, I will just have them go to the environmental working group right? And they can put in their zip code and they can look at their water and see what's in their water. And a lot of times the water is hundred percent toxic and they grade it a through F what kind of toxicity, um, to your point about the medications, all of it's in there. If there's construction going on in the city, which here, I live in San Francisco, there's a lot of construction here. So there's a lot of runoff down into the sewer, right? There's a, there's a lot. So I always suggest that people, you know, get filter osmosis, right? Just do it because our skin is our biggest organ. We are taking in all those chemicals, which is going to be down-regulating our beautiful blueprint, that DNA that I talked about earlier, you know, and I don't want my kids suffering, right? I don't, I don't want my neighbor suffering. I don't want my, I don't want you guys suffering, right? So just do yourself a favor to Leanne's point, go over to the EWG.org and you can just plug in and check out that's it's a free resource. You don't have to pay anything, but you can just educate yourself on, you know, empowerment. Knowledge is power when it comes to our own being. It's advocating for yourself. Yep. Yeah. I'm Absolutely. really passionate about that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I can hear it in your voice. So we are coming to time. Mm. Um, I'm looking at the clock and we are actually at time and I want to respect your, your time. So I have a question of the season. I'd like to have both of you jump on that. Um, What would you change about your job or the practice that people have in your role, if you could? Oh, that's a good question. I feel like I've just finally landed in a career over the last couple of years that completely fulfills me. And it's because they give us the time we need. You know, we work four-day work weeks because that gives us back some control of our time. 
Uh, if there's personal issues, they give us the time we need to deal with those issues and they ask, are you okay? Um, so I would say I, I've never really had it to this degree before, but if, if that was, if I wasn't getting that, that's definitely what I need, but I didn't realize I needed it until I started getting it. So I hope that answers your question. (laughs) Absolutely. That's awesome. Okay. I need you to repeat it. Yeah. I need you to repeat the question again. Cause yeah. I'm mulling it around. <laughs> so what would you change about your job or the practice that people have in your, in your role or your job? If you could. Nothing. That's beautiful. Yeah. Nothing. I'm super grateful for what I do and, and how I show up in the world and how the people around me are able to show up. Um, yeah. And that's what I want for others, you know, is I want people to show up and be their best self and to live in their bodies and feel comfortable and safe. Yeah. When when you get to a point where you can say that, you know, that you've, you know, that you've won. hundred percent. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, I, I, um, I think there are a few people out there that, that can, can truly say nothing. And, um, but that is the, that's the goal, right. To, yeah to find your, you know, find your place, to find your happy spot, to be fulfilled. So that's awesome. If, um, if my guests or my guests, if my, God, I am just not on the ball today. If my audience would like to reach out to you, how would they go about doing that? The easiest way is without liquor. (laughs) I love it when Lane sings it. (laughs) Laughing without liquor.com. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> laughing without liquor on the social, on the website. That's really the best place. Laughing without liquor or lanekennedy.com for me. Tomorrow. Laughing without liquor.com. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, ladies. This has been such a fun conversation. I really enjoy it. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to Let's Talk HR. I appreciate your time and support. Without you, the audience, this would not be possible. So don't forget that if you enjoyed this episode, to follow us, like us, or share us. Have a wonderful day.